Al Jazeera podcast. Friday uh, at 11 p.m., I could feel the bed that I was sleeping in next to my little son sway and s- gradually wake me up. At 11.11 p.m. on Friday, September 8th, a life-changing earthquake shook Morocco. With breaking news, a powerful earthquake has just struck Morocco. The USGS says the quake has a preliminary magnitude of 6.8. It was centered about 45 miles from Marrakesh, a city of about a million residents. Buildings in the tourist hotspot of Marrakesh crumbling to the ground. And what was strange is that it was felt across Morocco. Just a few hours later, Mossab al-Shami, a photojournalist with the Associated Press, packed his bags and left his family at home. We decided to head directly to the epicenter. He drove into some of the most remote regions of the country, in the high Atlas Mountains. Everybody was saying the real catastrophe is there, that the real disaster is unfolding in those villages. So what did he see in the first 24 hours after Morocco's biggest earthquake in a century? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Morocco's Atlas Mountains don't usually make the headlines, so not many journalists were nearby when the earthquake struck. My name is Mosab Shami, and I am a journalist at the Associated Press, and I cover North Africa for the AP. Mosab is originally from Egypt. But he's based now in the Rabat, Morocco, a few hours away from the area hardest hit. So we called him up to find out what he'd seen. So tell me what you've been doing for the past 24 hours or so. So I was woken up by a swinging house. I didn't know whether that was something I had dreamt of or something that had happened. So I immediately checked on... Uh, outside my balcony, and I saw that people were uh, filling the streets. They looked very distressed. I opened Twitter and I saw that there was an earthquake. Can I pause you there? Because um, yeah, I'm in Los Angeles, and I can remember the first time I was awoken out of bed via an earthquake. And I also thought, maybe I was dreaming. Did I just feel that? Had you experienced an earthquake before in Morocco? I had never experienced an earthquake before. So that was that was the first earthquake I felt. Did you have any idea how bad it could eventually be? Not for a f- not for a couple of hours. I think until I saw that it was close to seven on the Richter scale, that gave me the first pause because that's pretty big. Six point eight registered. That was the first report. With breaking news, a powerful earthquake has just struck Morocco. The USGS says the quake has a preliminary magnitude of 6.8. It was centered about 45 miles from Marrakesh, a city of about a million residents. Then the first casualty report, which was a couple of hours after that, almost 300 deaths initial. A powerful 6.8 earthquake has hit Morocco, killing at least 296 people. The most recent earthquake in Morocco happened almost 20 years ago and there was a 600 total deaths in the Hussein region and that was pretty catastrophic. So to start with 300, I immediately felt that this is really bad. 
people in Rabat felt it, people in Casablanca, people in Marrakesh, people in Fez, and uh, people in Agadir. So it looked like a pretty big deal. That's when Mossab took out his camera and went to work with his colleagues. And uh, we left shortly before dawn, so around 4.30 or 5 a.m., Everybody was worried of uh, more aftershocks. So it was pretty confusing. That journey was basically a lot of decision-making because we're, we're kind of racing against time. The initial reports were from Marrakesh. However, speaking with colleagues and eyewitnesses and, and seeing uh, what was unfolding, we decided to head directly to the epicenter. However, we had to stop in Marrakesh anyway, uh, since it is on the way and the significant damage that had taken place was in a part of the old Medina called the Milah uh, district. The damage to the centuries-old World Heritage Site is extensive. Buildings giving way under the force of the late night quake. It is a neighbourhood mostly uh, inhabited by, uh, or used to be inhabited by uh, Jewish Moroccans. But now it's a little more diverse. So uh, we just drove along the walls of the historic city, a, a UNESCO World Heritage Site, and uh, we could already see the damage. There was cracks in those ancient walls, and there was even some walls that had um, collapsed. And then, yeah, we headed to the High Atlas. So the closest city to the epicenter is Marrakesh, but much of the damage and the deaths are in these High Atlas mountains. What is that area like? Do you know how those deaths happened? Yeah, so it's mountainous, it's arid, it's very rocky. And uh, to get to it, you drive through winding roads on very narrow roads. Some of them are asphalt, some are just dusty roads. And they've been inhabited by the Amazigh for centuries. It's where... These tribes have always lived and they've always used these mountains to their advantage, whether it's during the fight against colonizers or just enemies. And although it's September, although it gets very, very hot during the day, these areas also can be very cold at night. And the lack of infrastructure and the basic idea of life there, homes are made, some made of clay, some made of stone, definitely not houses that are made to withstand earthquakes. I think the majority of people, the ones we spoke to, almost everyone was already in their homes by 11 p.m. And that probably exacerbated that disaster because everyone was stuck inside those houses that later crumbled. We got to the first, uh, the nearest uh, village outside of Marrakesh. It was about 50 or 60 kilometers away. It's called Mula Ibrahim. It's a tiny village. Homes that are built in a progressive way above each other on a hill. And it was, as someone said, it was as if they have been bombed. Houses collapsed on people. People are suffering here. We are in dire need of ambulances. Please send ambulances to Mula Ibrahim. The whole village was destroyed, pretty much. Oh my gosh. Every house was damaged. Some were completely crumbled. Some were almost folded off like paper. Uh, obviously, there were lots of people still under the rubble. Even so, there was 
those that came out were a lot of them dead. So people were in shock, people were mourning, people were traumatized, and there was a sense of not fully realizing what had happened. Mossab, you are a very talented photographer. And so I've seen some of your work for the Associated Press, as well as on your Instagram. You have some haunting pictures from these mountains. Can you talk to me about what you saw behind the lens? To try and capture the scale of this tragedy, I tried, first of all, to focus on the people. I started taking pictures inside a coffee shop. It was at the at this entrance of Mulay Brahim. It's where the first sign of uh, wreckage was. And I walked in, there was no one, but I could feel like it's almost like the aftermath of something dystopian. Um, some uh, tagines were destroyed. Tagines that are usually uh, mm. where Moroccan dishes and meals are usually served. Uh, on the floor, uh, walls were split into two. Uh, the terrace was um, also destroyed. Mm. Just I spent over an hour just following rescue workers try to keep a man alive by feeding him water, but also uh, digging very, very slowly. And I could only see his foot. Is it clear now that this is the area where most of the deaths happened? Do we know that yet? Yeah, we do know that the epicenter of the earthquake was in uh, Al-Hoz region. The province of Alawu, situated at the epicenter of the earthquake, suffered the highest number of casualties with 1,293 fatalities, followed by the province of Tarudant, which reported 452 deaths. So after shooting different things, the damage, the efforts, the, the makeshift tents, the hospitals, even the burials and the prayers. We tried heading to another town, Wurgan, which was close to a really beautiful lake. So it's on a normal day, people go and camp there. It was in a complete desert, even, even worse than Mullah Ibrahim. Uh, bodies were being recovered in a much quicker pace. People were digging wherever they could just to bury in, 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 in just 15 minutes. I had witnessed four burials of bodies that had just been freshly recovered. Oh my gosh. And put in a shroud. And the men were sobbing, people were digging and commiserating each other at the same time. It was, it was, it was really, really awful. So are rescue efforts able to reach these remote regions? That's after the break. When Truganini died, she was mistakenly declared the last Tasmanian Aboriginal. Though some say she sold out her people, in hindsight, Truganini's survival allowed future generations to learn about the near annihilation of the Aboriginal people of Tasmania. I'm Charles Dance. Listen as I trace the life of Truganini. Hindsight by Al Jazeera. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. So, Mushab, I know there are some places that rescuers haven't even been able to get to yet. Yeah. 
We drove almost three hours away from Moulay Ibrahim just to try and get to Moulay Yaqub, close to a village called Ijakuk. And these were also some of the most affected villages, some of the highest tolls. The rocks had completely fallen from the mountains and destroyed some cars, really, uh, shuttered the roads, and they had to be reopened. And what we saw there was people hadn't even received any kind of assistance yet. I was asleep when the earthquake struck. I couldn't escape because the roof fell on me. I was trapped. I was saved by neighbors who cleared the rubble with their bare hands. A man asked us, who should I call? My my whole family is under rubble. Do we call or do we wait? And he had tears in his eyes. Mm. And he was trying to point us towards the direction of a village that has completely sank down and it's just been impossible to reach. There is still a lot of stories that have not been told. And there is uh, a lot more people spending their night under rubble and we don't know how many of them will be alive. Did you see emergency vehicles arriving? Yeah, we saw military rescue dog teams trying to sniff the rubble for signs of life. There were helicopters roaming. Members of the Interior Ministry who were helping with also digging, with facilitating traffic, also helping with the rescue mission. So there had been deployments. At that moment, it didn't feel like enough. There were still people who had not yet received support. Uh, There were still people who said that their loved ones had been under rubble for almost uh, 10 hours now. And there was clearly some effort done, but I think it was also quite complicated to get to these remote regions and start um, distributing and dispersing all of that help that we expect to see. Sonia Omar runs an organization called Education for All Morocco, which houses girls from this remote region so they have better access to schools and education. She's based in London, but has been in contact with people on the ground in Morocco. Due to the school holidays, the 250 girls who usually uh, live at our boarding houses were home in their villages. And so, yes, we're awaiting some very sad news. All of our six boarding houses have been damaged. Some girls have lost their houses. And we know of a girl who was with us three years ago who, who died with her entire family. But even getting that information is hard right now, she says, let alone getting help to the people who need it. It's not easy to contact the villages and find out how the girls are. These villages are already very uh, remote and accessible, so getting aid there will also be um, challenging. John Johnson, with Doctors Without Borders, arrived about 24 hours after the earthquake struck. And two of us went down to a village called Amismis, which is near the epicenter of the earthquake. There's a small clinic that's treating patients there, working outside in a tent because uh, people are afraid to stay inside buildings, that there might be aftershocks and that the building might collapse. The place quickly filled up to about 15 uh, patients, uh, different types of wounded, broken arms, broken legs, uh, cranial trauma, things like that. And the doctors and nurses that were there were treating them the best they could. They've all been working for about now 36 hours straight. Um, Everybody's exhausted. Um, They're working with the supplies that they had. It's starting to run low. 
The conditions are difficult, but he says they're working with Moroccan authorities now to assess how best to meet people's needs. You see uh, Red Cross volunteers, you see uh, the Moroccan military. Um, additionally, uh, there's ambulances moving back and forth between the epicenter and uh, hospitals. It's, it's really incredible, the, the devastation that we saw. The more modern buildings seem to have held up pretty well, but uh, a lot of the traditional buildings in the smaller vi villages have just been completely destroyed. Uh, there's nothing left but, but rubble and rocks. I asked Mossab if Morocco could have been better prepared. It's been reported that this is the country's deadliest earthquake for more than six decades. By the early hours of Sunday, the official death toll had soared past 2,000, with more than 2,000 others injured. Those numbers are set to continue rising. Is this something that the country could have been better prepared for? Or is it just that unusual that it, it's taken everybody by surprise? Yeah, um, there is always the legacy of the Agadir earthquake. The stricken town of Agadir shattered by the most terrible earthquake ever known in Morocco. Which occurred in the 60s and killed more than 10,000 people. When the first figure of about 1,000 dead was given, the world was profoundly shocked. Then it's still fresh in people's memory, although it's been over uh, six decades. We don't know if this will reach the same toll. Obviously, Morocco has gone through a large transformation in terms of its infrastructure. But actually, it is still this, like a similar region. It is not too far from where the, the Agadir earthquake took place. But in some ways, this region has even more challenges, Mushab says. Snowfall that occurs every year in the Atlas Mountain, it like, secludes entire villages, sometimes for weeks, and people have to rely on military helicopters or gendarme helicopters to come and parachute foods, food and, and aid to them, or in the case of pregnant women who have to be uh, carried from these towns to the nearest hospital. So an earthquake makes this completely a complete wild card in that sense. How swift can the military and the uh, Red Crescent and the uh, rescue mission and the uh, civil service all take part to just stop this misery because obviously this will go on for a long time this will be another legacy and uh, for, for for this earthquake and uh, morocco will take a long time to heal from this i take it that your wife and your family are used to the job that you have but when you left in the middle of the night you grabbed your camera after an earthquake that you guys had never felt before in morocco um what did your wife think and how's your family doing? My wife actually reminded me to take pictures. <laughs> <laughs> I had been asleep and she had kind of like been half awake. While I was just trying to figure out what was going on, she was like, you should probably take some photos of this. However, I had made a plan to leave first thing in the morning towards Marrakesh. Thankfully, my family is okay. And um, a lot of people in Rabat and Casablanca were just shaken and nothing uh, beyond that. But when breaking news happens, it's, uh, it dictates everyone's attention. At the moment, it is a rescue operation. And there are nations, including the UK and, and France, who are already sending rescue personnel to Morocco. 
It's been very touching just to see the world solidarity with Morocco. Um, I was quite surprised by some of the uh, people who reached out to me after years. Morocco, just almost a year ago, was living through the euphoria of the World Cup and to see this really difficult moment happen in a place that I have come to call a second home and I um, have come to love and uh, obviously I continue to grieve uh, with uh, all the people who are still suffering as of this moment. Uncertainty of the future suddenly lost their homes. Some people lost their children, their parents. The story is still not done and the numbers could continue to rise over next week. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Amy Walters and Zaina Badr with Ashish Malhotra, Chloe K. Lee, David Enders, Faranisa Campana, Khalid Sultan, Miranda Lynn, Sonia Bagat, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Alexandra Locke is The Take's executive producer, and Nay Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back.